Hello and welcome to Life Sentences. I'm Caroline Baum. In this episode, I'm talking to the doyenne of Australian biography, Brenda Nile, who has written a memoir about her life spent telling the stories of other people's lives. Brenda Nile has nine biographies under her belt. They include biographies of painter Judy Kassab, writer Martin Boyd, painter Georgiana McRae, the Boyd family, Mary Durack and her sister Elizabeth, and perhaps most ambitiously, Archbishop Mannix. Now, at 91, she's written a memoir, My Accidental Career, an engaging, modest account of how she embarked on a pursuit that was pioneering and coincided with a new interest in Australian cultural figures. I spoke to Brenda Nile via Zoom at her home in Melbourne and began by asking her whether she'd noticed anything about how biography as a genre has evolved. I think things have changed, not enormously, but when I first wrote biography, uh, people would say things like, That's, that really was a very good, good read. I enjoyed that. And when are you going to write a novel? <laughs> so there was a sort of hierarchy in literary forms and biography didn't rate. It was, well, sometimes gossip and scandal. And you'd get that tiresome question, which was, what did you find out? Which never seemed to me to be the point. Or not all of it anyway. I think since then, there's been a lot of very good work has happened. I don't know that it hasn't got the prestige that novels have. Biography has always been awkwardly placed between history and fiction. But over the years, I've been writing them now for more than 30 years, and I certainly feel more comfortable in saying, even saying I'm a biographer, instead of saying, well, I'm a writer and waiting for the next question, which would be, what do you write? Then they say, I say biography, and they say, oh. So that used to happen, but that's less, less of a problem. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear it. Now, I'm interested in the fact that in your own memoir, you tell us quite a bit about your childhood. There was a time when childhood was not considered to be an important part of biography. Do you think that now we're giving too much weight to childhood in a person's life? Or do you think we've struck the right balance? I think the balance is about right. I think people are aware of the importance of childhood. And I, I certainly wouldn't, I wouldn't take on a book, a biography, unless I knew something about the childhood. Sometimes you know more than others, but it does help you to understand. For example, recently I wrote about Nettie Palmer as one of a group of women writers. I had found Nettie a bit tiresome in being so humble all the time. And when I, I looked at the records of her family, the archives, public records, I found that she was the first of her parents, then four children, to survive. Three had died. She was a survivor. And I think there was a note quite often in her voice about not really being as good as she should have been with her parents. She should have done more for them. And a sort of a survivor guilt, I think. Anyway, it's just an example of an occasion where I thought, I'd better look at the birth records and see something about the family. And I found this revelation that three had died in infancy. And the Nettie, the first girl, was the survivor. That's fascinating. So if, if a biographer were to be writing about you, what do you think would be the most salient point about you in a biography? Well, having written it this way, I, I think I probably still would say that a combination of things, being born with quite severe asthma, getting a lot of attention, and a lot of the attention from my mother, grandmother, my father, and others in the family, 
uh, being read to from early age. So that my first few years had a lot of words in them. And so that feeling of, I suppose, tentativeness, I think my mother was terrified that I wouldn't survive and probably nearly didn't. And also my father, who was a doctor and very, very good at his work, expressed confidence. If he was there, everything was all right. He would give me an injection, adrenaline, which was a lifesaver then before all the bronchodilators and things we have now. So I, th I think it, it did seem to me to be the starting point, to be, to be a, ch a word child, you might say, and a rather fragile one at the beginning with not, not a lot of confidence. It's interesting, that issue of confidence, Brenda, because you started with Edith Wharton as your first subject for a biography. Now, she seems like an incredibly ambitious project for a novice. And so that, to me, describes someone who's got a kind of almost hubristic sense of confidence. Do you think that when you chose Edith Wharton, you didn't quite know what you were doing? I think that's right, Caroline. I didn't know how hard it might be. I thought she was interesting. I thought that I could understand her. I didn't, well, I didn't start with the idea of biography anyway. It was a critical study. I don't think that I had thought it through. I was doing a thesis, and as a thesis, it was fine. Difficulties would have come later. And then, of course, I was up against another authorised biographer who was sitting on a lot of secrets, and I had to postpone it and eventually put it aside. I was quite confident, I think, that I could write something interesting about Edith and that I could get to understand her, but I was not realistic about the difficulties of international biography, for example, to write for how, how long I would have to spend in archives. I didn't know what an archive was, probably. The striking thing that you mentioned about the Edith Wharton archive is these very handsome blue and gold boxes that everything was kept in. Oh, terrific luxury at Yale. There was so much money and purpose-built, modern building, very elegant, hardly any people working there, more staff than readers, and everything tiptoe, people deferring to you and sharpening your pencils for you. It was quite a luxurious experience. It was not quite like that in other archives that I've used, but that, that one probably is top of the tree for attentiveness from the staff and ceremonious handling of materials. How important, Brenda, is it for you, when we're talking about the research process and, say, your love of archives, how important is it for you to visit a place where your subject has lived? Can you get a lot of information from a room or a house or a space, or do you not think that that's essential? It's essential to me. I, th I think that I, I always want to see where, where they lived and how they lived. And I suppose that's extreme. The book I did on the Boyd family was actually built around a series of houses, all of which, the surviving ones at least, all of which I visited and looked at and thought about. And while in the book itself I didn't describe them in, in any detail, the feeling that I knew it was there. Arthur Boyd's London house was fascinating. A tour given by his son Jamie, who said that's where Dad kept his kiln, that's where Dad did this, that and the other. That's the paints, those are the paint marks. This is the tidy room for clients. And I got a really good sense of Arthur Boyd's working life through going up and down the stairs at that Hampstead house with Jamie. 
what about Martin Boyd himself? Because Martin died in sort of rather sad and straitened circumstances. So where did you go to find Martin? I went to the house of his childhood, Yarra Glen. I went to a house which had gone to other hands in Brighton, Melbourne suburb that I knew quite well. Actually, his grandmother lived in the same street as my grandmother. Uh, his grandmother's house was rather grander, but was the same street. And I, I felt that I sort of knew something even from that. I knew the view to the sea from the upper windows, I'd say, from his grandmother's house. Uh, later, I went to England and looked at the house which I described as his Tory squire, Tweedy period, <laughs> near Cambridge. And uh, I met I met the people who remembered him. Actually, I was asked there to give a talk in the, the room that he had designed. He'd added on to a cottage. Martin was a sort of an architect whose career had been inter interrupted by the war. So he, had, he knew something about building and he built on a room. So there I addressed what they called the Little Everston Bookworms, which was a, uh, a group a group who got round to discuss books. There was even, we were joined by Rosie, who had been his cook. Oh. And she said, she said, Mr. Boyd was a very nice gentleman and he would ask me in to play charades with the guests as soon as I had finished the washing up. That's a lovely detail, isn't it? Yeah. So that sort of thing's always been important for me, Caroline. I don't think have I ever missed one. Well, yes, Judy Kassab was a problem. Judy Kassab's life was, of course, dominated by the Holocaust and the village or the little town where she'd grown up was there. But I remember her saying, you can't get there anyway. And she said, how could I be homesick for a place that doesn't exist. And by that she meant that all Jews had been killed. She had escaped because she was away at the time. While well, I suppose it was a, still a community of, of kinds, but it had been deprived of all, all it meant most to her, to Judy. So that, that was a difficult one. It was my only living subject. I could ask her anything, but there were gaps. And there was also gaps in my confidence that I could write about the Holocaust. What distance do you get from it? How close? What What can I ask her? What will she be willing to say? Her mother had died in, in the ovens of, of uh, Auschwitz and all that in her background. So that was, that was the one where I had really very little grasp of the childhood at first hand, though there, there was a wonderful unexpected breakthrough. I had a Monash friend whom I was talking to about my project. And he said, I think that Judy Kassab came from the same town as Leslie Bodie. And Leslie was professor of German, Hungarian-born professor of German at Monash, where I had been working. And uh, he said he's pretty sure that was true. So I got in touch with Leslie and he said, yes, he, he, had, he had lived opposite Judy's, his family rather, had lived opposite Judy's grandmother and his oh. father had been the family doctor. Oh, my goodness, what an extraordinary coincidence. Extraordinary. And he was there all the time. Given the difficulties of that particular live subject, you have preferred to work on subjects who are no longer alive. I think so. Uh, what I like best, probably, is something where, where there's a living, a living voice to mediate. With Martin Boyd, for example, I spent a lot of time with his sister. She was 10 years younger than Martin, and she told me a lot about their family life and 
Martin from her memory of the older brother whom she loved. Our, our conversation had begun rather hesitantly. She wasn't sure she wanted to talk to me, but she relaxed. And when, when something went wrong with the sound equipment, which I didn't think she wanted to use, she phoned her son to come and fix it so that she'd <laughs> go on. And afterwards she wrote to me and said how much she, she liked the childhood chapters. She said, it was, it was almost as if you had grown up with us. to know, Brenda, given that you've written, I think it's nine biographies, whether you've ever fallen out of love with a subject or found something out about them that really challenged your view of them in a way that was risky to your relationship with them and their work and their, well, their their presence in terms of how you were going to interpret them. Because it seems to me that this is a real risk for a biographer. I mean, no person's life is perfect. People make mistakes. Some of those mistakes have very serious consequences for other people. Has there ever been something where you felt like a kind of rift or a break of sympathy with a subject? I think that on the whole, not. I've thought about them quite a bit before taking on their lives. So there would be some that I've thought, no, not for me. I couldn't cope with that. But a small disappointments, I suppose, or well, maybe sort of identification with a subject and then realising that he or she is going to do something I don't approve of and think, oh, I wish he wouldn't, I wish she wouldn't, that sort of thing. I felt that once with Georgiana McRae and one of her daughters. I thought she was behaving badly towards the daughter, but I was thinking, I can see why she's so fed up with life and she's taking it out on the daughter, but oh dear, I do wish she wouldn't. But that, that's pretty mild compared with what you're suggesting. Yes, I suppose what I'm wondering about really is how you feel about the role of judgment in your role as a biographer. So do you think that it is your role to interpret and judge a person that you write about? Or is it up to you to present the evidence and then leave it to the reader to make up their mind how they feel about that? I think I would go with your second alternative, leave it to the reader. I think that's right. On the other hand, it isn't possible to be neutral, really, because a lot depends on the evidence that you present. There may be something I don't use, which would slant the viewpoint in a different way. So being absolutely impartial, I'd say, a nice idea, but is it possible? I don't think it is. No, I don't think it is either. At what point... Did your interest in biography shift from the work of a writer to their life? Because that seems to me to be a pivotal moment. I think I think it was reading Martin Boyd's diaries. And I had I had done some work, I'd done a small book, a book sort of introduction in a series called Australian Writers and Their Work, aimed at students, and I had done a bit of work and I met a few Boyd family members, but I still had a rather limited view of Boyd himself as perhaps a rather precious and snobbish young man and uh, I hadn't particularly liked him actually. Then when when he died and all his belongings came back from Rome in a trunk, which is always a nice thing for a biographer to think about papers in trunks, (laughs) I, I was asked by his executor and nephew Guy Boyd, if I'd like to have a look at Uncle Martin's diaries, which he said were very dull. He, he and his wife had been reading bits to each other in bed at night. They'd 
been almost soporific, but he didn't know what to do with them. Did they have value? Should he give them to the library or what? So I agreed to read them. Pretty soon I was hooked on the difference between my own slight prejudice against him and the feeling that this was a different, quite a different man, more vulnerable, braver. It showed sides of him that I hadn't thought about. He, this is what they're written. They were late diaries written in Rome when he was very lonely. And I was, I was very moved, really, by the courage with which he had faced old age, poverty, and then cancer and death. So it was then, that moment, I think, that the novels that I'd read, Barton Boyd's novels, which I certainly had liked, became less important than the man who created them. You've had a lot of support and encouragement along the way from male colleagues. And there's something rather refreshing about the sense that you were not competing with a boys club and that there wasn't a kind of rivalry. In fact, there's something much more collegiate going on. Would you agree with that? Well, I do. I've felt a bit bit self-conscious about it, actually, when people people find it incredible. I didn't have any conflict, but I didn't. And I talked to a couple of my uh, my fr- women friends from that period and said, what do you think? Were you ever, did you ever feel put down? And uh, they said, no, we, we were lucky maybe. Well, we were lucky. No, you I, were? Uh, I suppose <laughs> the fact that I was given a lot of help by male colleagues and people with the power to help the other side of that is that I just did not know any women who had the status and influence who could have helped me. There weren't any. You see, I, I'm, I'm too old for the women's movement, really. Your development as a biographer coincides with the development of new universities, which you were involved with, like Monash and yeah. ANU. And so maybe the feeling of starting a new educational institution had a kind of generosity of spirit around it before circumstances got so straightened that people were forced, in a way, to compete with each other for very scant numbers of grants or funds to travel, for example. So I think you're right you were there in a kind of little window of opportunity yes if it didn't sound sentimental i'd say it was camelot One of the really fascinating things that you say at the end of your memoir is that you think that a parallel theme, together with the fact that you've written mostly about people whose lives are defined by art and creativity, is that the the other great theme of your work is home and displacement. Can you talk a little bit about that? I didn't think about it at the time as I was writing them. I wasn't looking for themes of exile, the only, the only one, I suppose, most obviously refugee was Judy Kassab, but in Australia it is a big theme and things came together, I suppose. I was influenced by the attitude towards refugees, both people, political happenings here which were so awful that you couldn't not take them in, even though they might have had very little to do with my work in progress. But as as I worked through them, I did find that the theme of home was important to nearly everybody. Martin Boyd, for example, was always restless, always looking for the right place to live, and finished up, as I've said before to you, a lonely old man in Rome, 
he never quite found it, but that was what, that seemed to be a central theme in his life, a search for home. When I did A Life of My Grandmother, always a bit of a risk. I mean, it doesn't sound very interesting. I write about my grandmother. People switch off and think, well, it's a dutiful thing to do, but I bet it'll be terrible. But I, I found that her, her displacement from her early life in Liverpool, a big, big, rather poverty-stricken family, when she left home, she came to Australia in search of independence, went teaching in, in the Riverina, married a grazier, and there she was in a, with seven children, left a widow, and in a place that was alien to her. She never, according to my mother, she never knew, knew one horse from another except one might be grey. She didn't really fit in at all. So I, I hadn't thought of her in that way, but I realised that she also seemed to follow the pattern that I'd been finding in all these other earlier lives, more prominent lives, that so many of them were displaced in some way. Well, talking about prominent lives, we don't get more prominent really than someone like Cardinal Mannix, who after all, you you had seen him as a child walking the streets of Kew where you grew up. So he was a figure from your own childhood. How would you illustrate the theme of home and displacement in his case? Well, he was a long way from home from Ireland. He had been very involved in the political movements in Ireland. It was when he was sent to Australia, it was just coming, just before World War I, when Irish independence was beginning to stir and things were happening. There was a bit of optimism about getting rid of the British rule and he was sent, sent out here a very long way away just when he probably wanted to be part of the independence movement. So it, it was important to him. And um, I thought about that. Oh, something that just has just occurred to me to go back to the sort of the theme we were talking about before, the childhood. Mm. Something that I found out about Mannix, which nobody had ever noticed before, was that the near, he grew up on a farm, one of five, five children, I think. The nearest neighbours were not Irish, they were British. There was a boy of about his, his age, about Mannix's Manix, age, who went to an English boarding school. They were Protestant descendancy, and there was a class difference between them and the lower class Mannix farming family. So that would have had some effect, I think. Can't prove it, but if you live next door, well, a farm is, is not exactly next door, but if your closest neighbours had a big house and a big property and even was known as the big house, which is a, a term of social social status in Irish life, so that, that was something that I, I needed to know about Mannix and thank goodness discovered it. What was it like taking on the challenge of writing about that man's world, a very closed world, a world bound in all sorts of trappings and rituals and a fair amount of secrecy. What was it like? I mean, where do you start? I started at the end with, <laughs> with, with, with a sentence, I think, saying it took three days to burn his private papers and went backwards from there. I had many, I had visual images and I'd met him, of course. I had interviewed him disastrously. He was terribly hard to interview. I know it, it was... It was a closed world, but it might have been an advantage to be a woman having a look at it because you ask questions that any, any inner, anyone from the inner circle wouldn't even think to ask or to think about. 
So in a way, I thought I thought it probably worked for me. Right at the beginning of this conversation, you said that you were irritated when people ask you as a biographer, what did you discover? As if there always has to be a secret. So you clearly think that there doesn't always have to be a secret in a biography. There doesn't always have to be a revelation, does there? No, I don't, I don't think there does. Well, should I qualify that? There probably always is. There must be revelation. The things, the things must always surprise you. I suppose I meant by that that the appetite for scandal, thinking that some kind of headline or gossip is going to be the big thing when really it may be small things that are revealing of character. In the case of Cardinal Mannix, you do actually refer to a dynamite find in the archive. What exactly was that dynamite, and was it really dynamite? Well, it would have been if anybody noticed. I'm not sure they <laughs> did. I thought it was dynamite. This, this was late in Mannix's life. He was in his late 90s, not long before his death, and what was going on in Rome at the centre of the church administration was the Second Vatican Council, where... Many people hoped for reform, reforms that still really haven't happened, and it would be assumed that Mannix, at his age, would be a conservative and want to leave things the way they were. And what, what amazed me was that it was nothing of the kind. He was, he was cheering on the more radical cardinals and urging them. By the way, he, he was an archbishop. He was never a cardinal. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I'm always bad at that demarcation, and I just have this picture of him in some swanky purple-pink robe. Oh, yes. Well, he would, he would have those too, but he didn't have the cardinal's hat. Right. He was never, never in favour in Rome. But what, what was amazing was that he, he, didn't, he didn't side with the Conservatives at all. He wrote six letters to radical cardinals, urging them on and even congratulating them on the fellowship of the coffee bar, thinking about them having coffee together in Rome. And that was amazing, but no one has taken any interest in it because most people who have written about Mannix have wanted him to be the Conservative. At least that's what I think. Well, and as you say, in a sense, it can't have been dynamite because nothing happened. Exactly. Yes, yes. And the other, the other thing, which I didn't make so much of in the book because there wasn't enough evidence, but there was some evidence that he wanted sex education taught in schools. Wow. Well, again, yes, exactly. He said, no one should be ashamed to talk frankly about sex. That is huge. I know, I know. And what's happened since then makes it even more huge. Well, since you've actually brought up sex, let me ask you the question about sex that I asked you about childhood. Back in the day, childhood was not considered psychologically an important part of a biography. I mean, I'm talking about biography in Victorian times, obviously. In a pre-Freudian era, we didn't ascribe much value to a subject's childhood. Now, we are very interested in their sexual orientation, issues of gender, identity. How much have you tiptoed around sex and how much have you dived in and gone, gone for it? Well, I certainly tiptoed around with Martin Boyd. I was never sure everybody said something different. Everybody I talked to was interested and they would say in a rather hesitant way, well, I forget how they put it, but I knew what they were saying, was he or wasn't he? Mm. This was well before the word gay was around, so they didn't actually have a word for it. 
well, I suppose, did they say homosexual? I'm not sure. But they would be wanting to know. And sometimes if, if I raised a question, if I raised a question myself, I'd get either a, a vigorous yes or an equally vigorous no. <laughs> and it was very hard to know where to go with that one. And I'm not sure that that I handled as well as I could have. But that, that was, when did I write that? 1980s. And I think people were not not as intent on finding a truth or there being an absolute truth. Nowadays, people would talk more about spectrum. about another thing that is kind of taboo in its own way, I suppose, which is the sort of very porous border for some people, mostly novelists, between fiction and fact. So a novelist can write a biographical novel and speculate about a subject's internal life. And obviously we see that at its absolute zenith with someone like Hilary Mantel inside the head of Thomas Cromwell. Do you enjoy reading that kind of biographical fiction or do you have a profound distrust of it? I have I have a distrust, yes. I I enjoy I enjoyed Wolf Hall, but I would have I would have liked it better if Hilary Mantel had made it clear in notes at the end which bits were total invention, which were not. I don't really like the borders being undefined as they are in that one. And my my own my own ma- manner of going about things would be not to, not to invent. If you, if you don't know anything, well, you have to put up with that. You could, you could, I wouldn't mind conjecture. I suppose I'd probably do it, but I think it, sh- it should be made clear somehow or other to the reader uh, that, say, this Thomas Cromwell is how uh, the author believes the father, say the father would have been, what kind of a childhood did he have? That's a new basic question. And so an abusive father is is invented without any evidence at all. But it's a slippery subject, really. You call yourself several times in your memoir, The Invisible Biographer, which actually I think would have been a lovely title for the book, The Invisible <laughs> Biographer. And I'm just wondering whether you can say something about that invisibility and how necessary you think it is for you to step away from the page and for us not to be aware of you while you're telling us a story? I'd be thinking of books like my biography of Georgiana McRae, who had a life story that really would make a novelette. The events spoke for themselves. You had illegitimate daughter of a duke, scheming stepmother, fortunes lost and made, a life that was very much ups and downs, this side of the world and the other. It had so much going on that really for me to be in there, there just wasn't any, there wasn't any need for me. Just tell, tell the story and let it, let it resonate. You seem to me to have tackled biography from within an academic framework. You've often been attached to a university and you've been doing scholarly research, but you've managed to write for a non-academic audience in a very accessible way. You haven't deployed this technique of inserting yourself into the narrative, but how have you juggled the rigour of the academic world's requirement of scholarship and research with a narrative that is compelling for the general reader? 
Well, you can always put put the scholarly stuff in the end notes out of the way. This is how I found it. That can be an end note, not clutter up your, your narrative. I think that's what I do. And I, I write just as, just as I think. I, I, don't, I don't have an academic voice. I'm just reading your book about the Durax at the moment. And, you know, the way that book opens, it opens with a scene. And when you describe that scene, it's a very dramatic sort of thing to describe a scene. It's not um, a linear biography that starts with, you know, the date of birth of a subject. It's right. I'm going to plunge you into the action now and you're just going to have to follow me. Keep up. That's right. Yes, well, I, I quite often have done that. I think the Durax beginning just seemed to me to be a good moment to get into the story when uh, when the, the girls, the sisters, are discovering their father's papers and facing for the first time the past of their their pastoralist family with all its, its good and bad and a good deal of history that they would rather not know about. And they, ha- they have to confront it. And that, that was where I wanted... I think that, that occurred to me as... Probably was the impulse to do the book, actually, that I could do it that I could begin with that. I haven't thought about that before, Caroline. I think it might be true that I saw that scene and then went from there. Well, it's it's a gripping read, I have to say. I think you've got a natural sense of drama. So whilst you say, you know, there doesn't have to be a secret in a biography, I think you've got just a sort of instinctive sense of where a story begins is not necessarily at the beginning, but it's at a point of crisis. Yes, I think I think that that is true, and it's probably uh, the Durax is a good example of it. Um, the beginning of Georgiana is the old woman in Melbourne having her portrait painted by a European whom she'd known in another life, and that that seemed to me to go to the heart of her exile and her being excluded from the artistic life as a portrait painter that she had wanted. So having her portrait painted was the beginning, and then I go backwards. Thank you very much for all the wonderful biographies that you've written to date, and also for dipping your toe into memoir um, so compellingly. I thought this was a really fascinating, fascinating read. Oh, thank you, Caroline. As Brenda Nile reveals in My Accidental Career, getting to the point of being one of our most prolific and respected biographers has not come without personal sacrifice. In devoting herself to the lives of others, perhaps she missed out on the conventional trajectory of relationships, but she seems to have made those choices and decisions without regret. It seems crazy to me, given how many prizes she's won, that she's not better known. But I think you could hear her natural modesty and reticence in our conversation. As the self-deprecating title of her memoir suggests, there's nothing showy about Brenda Nile's approach to her choice of subject or her methods. She was as interested in people whose lives have been overlooked as she was in her more famous subjects. But I don't think her career was quite as accidental as she makes out. Thank you for listening to Life Sentences. The show is produced by Two Heads Media and Pipe Wolf Media. Music is composed and performed by Amanda Brown. We live and work on Darawal country and pay our respects to the traditional owners of the land. 